This is the word of the Lord. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way? At the crossroads, she takes her stand. Besides the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Thus far as the reading of God's Word, will you join me in prayer, please? Our God and Holy Father, Your Word tells us about the one to whom You will look. He is of a contrite spirit and trembles before Your Word. Lord, today, open my lips and my mouth will declare forth Your praise. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So far in the book of Proverbs, we see that wisdom comes to us in the context of a covenant community. Wisdom speaks as a sagely king father to a child, to a son, to a youth. And so the context is quite clear. But this chapter, Proverbs chapter 8, is unique. In this, we meet one of the central characters, and that is Lady Wisdom. In the next chapter, we're introduced to Madam Folly, and they're meant to provide for us these two startling contrasts. But we have Lady Wisdom, who is the personification of the attribute of God, wisdom. So this is God speaking as divine wisdom. It is God as wisdom. And here, Lady Wisdom, who is the personification of all that is right, and that which will bring us to life, calls out. We saw this in chapter 1 already, after that section in which the father 
appeals. He's pleading with his son, don't join a band of robbers that lies in wait to ambush the innocent, bearing quite a striking similarity to the forbidden woman that we've seen, the adulteress. She lies in wait to ambush the unsuspecting, the gullible. She's whispering in quiet places. She's saying, turn in here. She's offering seductive speech. She's saying, come in here and find a place for yourself. She's doing so quietly, discreetly. And Lady Wisdom is calling out loudly. God is calling out loudly, boldly, proclaiming the way that leads unto life. And Lady Wisdom calling out with her invitations signals to us a very key attribute of God himself. God is an inviting God. And it's incredible because he's under no compulsion or obligation to do so, to invite his creatures, the children of mankind, to come and feast on the bountiful provision that he has spread before them in divine wisdom, which is most climactically seen in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He has no obligation to offer that, and yet he beckons us to come. He pleads with us, and Lady Wisdom in this passage is pleading. She is calling out. I've said before in one of the prior messages that I preached on this book, Lady Wisdom is a street preacher, lifting up the voice, crying out to the children of mankind, rendering warnings. This is the way of life. There's a confrontation there, and there's a call by God to come and make wisdom our closest companion, our most trusted friend, because there is security to be found in her. And so the first thing we notice in this passage is that wisdom is out in the open. God confronts us boldly and publicly everywhere that we go. If you look at the confrontation here, where does wisdom meet us? Where does God's instruction for living meet us? Where does it come to us? Very public places. On the heights, verse 2. The crossroads, right where commercial activity comes together, where business is carried out, where there's commerce, where there is political activity. Talking about, of course, the gates, beside the gates in front of the town. At the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Places where people hold intellectual debate and exchanges with one another. Places where art happens. Places where disputes are decided. These are all awfully public settings. And the point of this, wisdom confronting us there, out in the open, is this. God's instruction comes to us in the places of business, in the places of commerce, and civil affairs, and cultural activity. And there is much to learn here. You could do a whole message on this just by itself. God's Word comes to us not in just the four walls of the church, just in the religious affairs, just 
in the places where there are stained glass windows and pews and hymnals and crosses hanging up behind us. God's wisdom, His instruction for living, speaks to every single affair of our lives in every context. Nothing is off limits, right? This revelation from God is not a church book. It is a book with a God that speaks with instruction that is relevant everywhere. In every facet of our existence, wisdom's application comes to us broadly in all the affairs of life. And you might find it repetitive here that Lady Wisdom is calling out, White Wisdom is calling out again. You remember in chapter 1, where she says, turn in here, take advantage, right? I'm presenting it to you. I'm not hiding anything. Here I am. Here's God speaking to the children of mankind. Here I am. Hear what I have to say. I'll make it very plain. Respond. Take advantage. Avail yourself of this wise instruction for living. And here we are again confronted, and we might be tempted to ask ourselves why that is. We might be tempted to become jaded to it. I thought that we just encountered something like this, but the tendency of sinful creatures like us, like me, and like you, is to be forgetful. Worldly influences cause us to become insensitive to wisdom's call. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life always threaten us. We are constantly receiving all of this input from our world and our culture, live this way, this is the good life, this is what's valuable, this is what you should highly praise and esteem, this is how you should look, this is how you should act, these are the decisions that you should make, this is what you should live for, this is where you should place your stock, this is where you should bow down and worship. We're constantly confronted with that. And here's Lady Wisdom coming into the marketplace in the public setting and lifting up her voice, competing for the affections of men and their hearts. God comes to us in that very public setting because He knows that we can become dull of hearing. The Bible speaks about this, and this is normally where the rebukes are issued in Scripture, where the people have become dull of hearing. You know, in Hebrews chapter 5, isn't this what the author of Hebrews wants to get across to his audience? He says, I have much to say to you. There's this glorious theological feast that I want to lay down before you. I've got a 32-ounce salt-and-pepper-crusted, cast-iron-seared, butter-glazed ribeye to put on the plate in front of you. I'm getting hungry now. I've got this steak, this fat theological steak to put down in front of you, and I'm afraid that you can't even stomach it, right? You still need milk. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. You're unskilled to discern between good and evil, which is a critical component of wisdom, as we'll see here. We just saw in verse 13 that I read, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. In order to be able to hate evil, we have to be able to discern good from evil. We have to be able to know, and so we have to be practiced in this. It takes effort, right? That's a central theme. I hope we're getting that over and over again as we go through this book. 
is that discipline, self-discipline, consistency, diligence, engagement, applying ourselves to understanding, seeking it like buried treasure, buried gold, precious jewels. All of this takes effort. It's not something that just comes uh, to us. Because we can become dull of hearing, he says in Hebrews chapter 5. I have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. And here's wisdom again, calling out to us, because God knows that our hearts can grow cold. We can become distracted. Remember, I told you this. And here's wisdom again, confronting us, bringing us back to the voice of wisdom. And wisdom, notice, God, he doesn't wait for his audience to come to him. He takes the initiative and goes to them. This is God's wisdom confronting us, meeting us. And who's it for? Right? Who's it for? It's for those who, of course, grow dull in heart. Right? And what does that mean, by the way? To be dull of heart, to be dull of hearing. It means that our affections our attitudes, our behaviors are not trained by God and His affections and His judgments and His desires, right? It's kind of like when I was growing up, there was a, a large freezer in my bedroom. And I remember when my parents first got it and they put it in there, it was so loud I couldn't sleep for a week. I could not sleep because that motor would come and it would just hum incessantly. And I couldn't sleep. But what happened after a week? And after two weeks, and after a month, I, I couldn't hear it anymore because it was just playing in the background. That's how we get with God's truth. Especially if you grow up in a Christian home, if you're under the hearing of the gospel all the time, if you're constantly surrounded by Christians and Christian activity, you can become dull of hearing. God's word just becomes background music. Right? We understand what that means, right? We're taken on by various tasks and we're wanting to get them done, so we just put something on to listen to. Just something to pass the time. Just something to keep our minds... It's just background music, right? We're not actively engaged with it, we just put it on. And the point of wisdom is this. Don't fall asleep. Don't become dull of hearing. Consider, ponder, ingest, internalize. Make it a part of you. Just like the father telling his son, my teaching, take that and make it your own. My God, take him and make him your God. Make it your own. Wisdom's invitations, who are they for? Look at verse 5. Of course, the dull of heart, but the simple ones, right? The spiritually gullible. Learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. And so, the inclusive nature of the call of wisdom. Wisdom's voice calls out as that street preacher, calling out to the masses that are headed for death. And those are the ones whom the simple ones are lumped together with. And in their own eyes, in their own way of doing things, there is a way that seems right unto them, but in the end thereof, it is death. And so wisdom calls out to the masses. And she calls out with instruction for royalty, for kings and queens, 
She calls out, verse 6, speaking noble things, kingly stuff, stuff of royalty. As we're told later on in the section that we'll get to, wisdom is that which by which kings rule. And so this is the stuff of royalty. Wisdom's words are truth. They're straight. They can be trusted. Her speech is plain. Not like those whose speech is crooked. Those who have ulterior motives. Those who are looking to deceive for the sake of self-gain and self-indulgence. Her speech is straight. It accords with the way that God made the world. If you remember, we're talking about wisdom in that God made the world a certain way. He made it to run and function according to the parameters that he established. And the duty of the children of mankind, whether great or small, whether rich or poor, whether tall or short, whether male or female, everyone who is created by God is to bring their lives into conformity with the way that God made the world. Someone once said that we don't break God's rules, we only break ourselves trying. Right? You can try to defy gravity, but it will come back and hit you in the face, quite literally, which is how God's Word is as well. And so, this straight speech that wisdom is giving, this attribute of God that is speaking in a personified way, this is the same attribute of God that carved order out of chaos in the cosmos, that brought unity out of disunity. And so this speech operates the same way. It cuts with the grain. It goes with the way that God made the world. It doesn't seek to undermine and overturn God's created order. That's what crooked speech does. If you look at the way that the world operates now and the way that they've weaponized language, right? Taking words, emptying them of their meaning, injecting an entirely different meaning into it. And why? Because those who are alienated from God will seek to even use language to further alienate God's creation from Him. That is what fallen creatures, that is what those who are rebellious, those who operate against God's design, seek to do. And so, wisdom and her invitations, what else are we told about her? Verse 9, this is the declarative statement about her value. It's better than silver. It's better than gold. It's better than jewels. As a matter of fact, it's priceless. All that you may desire cannot compare with her. And so wisdom, of course, has this hard sell, right? This practiced, polished thing that she wants to call us into, saying that the payoff is at the end. It's hard up front. It's trying but the payoff and the glory comes later, whereas the contrast is the way that the world works, the way that Lady Folly works, is that there's a payoff up front, or so we think, but it doesn't end well. It ends in destruction. It ends in devastation. It ends in ruin 
as we give our honor away in our years to the merciless. God offers himself in wisdom freely to whomever will come. And we're told here in verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Just to help us here with some of these words, prudence or shrewdness has to do with, it most literally means a foresight, being able to get out of the way of oncoming danger, of understanding the way that the world works and being able to adeptly navigate it, right? Knowing the way that God made the world, understanding the way it works and making the appropriate plans and executing the appropriate action in response to the way God made the world. It also carries with it the connotation of good judgment, temperance. It's not given to extremes or impulses, right? It's, it's moderated, it's tempered. And then discretion. Discretion has to do with the ability to keep one's own counsel, the ability to separate from the thinking of the herd, which carries a lot of meaning with us over the past two years, right? You hear the word herd and you have... PTSD in some sense, but, <laughs> but this idea of discretion carries with it the idea of not thinking independently of God, but thinking our thoughts after Him and being able to keep our own counsel in regards to His instruction and His law. It is based on a mind that can perceive and has insight and therefore an ability to discern good and bad, right and wrong, evil and and righteous. So, tying these all together here. God made the world in a certain way. It has order. Wisdom works in terms of that. God made the world to operate under a certain rhythm. My wife, she loves uh, organized choreography, right, where the dancers get up and they have a routine and it's, you know, they're keeping with a count. It's one and two and three and four. And it's, she's, she's trying to tell me, you know, there's a story being told here. You got to watch closely. It's not just about the music playing in the background. They're, they're telling a story when they do these things, but there's order, there's symmetry. And furthermore, there is a response on the part of the dancers. The music instructs them on how to move, right? It wouldn't make any sense for them to get up to this uh, fast rhythm song and do ballroom dancing. Right? It just wouldn't make sense. Likewise, it does not make sense for creatures to dance to the beat of their own drum when God has set his song in creation and it is to inform how we live, his blueprint, his design, it is what tells us how to move, what attitudes we are to have, what behavior we are to cultivate. And in order to do that, we have to be able to adeptly navigate the beat. We have to be able to keep the count, one and two and three and four, and we have to move appropriately and respond to the way God made the world, rather than what we are told about the wicked, those who are rebellious, those who are prideful, those who are arrogant, those who have perverted speech. Think about what that word means. Christians are those who live according to God's version 
We live according to God's thesis, the way that God intended things to function, and that's all by grace, by the way. That only happens because of who Christ is and what He's done for us, and that God is redeeming us, and He's disciplining us, and He's sanctifying us, and He's actually making us fit for the work that He has for us. But Christians live according to the version of life that God has prescribed, whereas the unbelieving world, those at war with God, those rebelling against His established order, those prideful, those arrogant, those saying, I will operate independently of God and His revelation. I do not need God's counsel. I dance to the beat of my own drum. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the master of my salvation. I don't need anyone. Those doing that live according to perversion. There's Christians that live according to the version, and then there are unbelievers. And that's literally the meaning of the word, perversion. They live in defilement of God's version, of His order. They live antithetically to the truth. Whereas Christians live according to the thesis, unbelievers live according to the anti-thesis. And those are the ones to whom we are called to distinguish and recognize this antithesis that God has put in creation between light and darkness. And here we're given one of the principal components of divine wisdom. And the text literally reads like this in verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hating evil. The fear of the Lord is hating evil. Now, much has been made, of course, about this already in terms of the overemphasis in modern evangelicalism today on the love of God, right? We try to boil down God's attributes into one nice and neat little package, and we just wrap a bow around it, and that bow is love, right? God is love. But... We have to understand that there's a corollary to that. There's a contrast. God is love, and therefore, God hates. God is love, therefore, God hates. And those who fear God are commanded to come into agreement with Him about that. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. There's a succinct definition of the fear of the Lord by one commentator. It says this, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. And isn't that how wisdom has come to us so far in the book of Proverbs, the teaching of a father? And it is those that fear God, those who have affectionately humbled themselves, who have said, I do not want to operate under my own principles. I do not want to be a law unto myself. I want to defer to the one who made me and who made the cosmos and who orders it according to to his purposes, and for his glory. That is the God who says, I hate. God loves marriage. Therefore, he hates adultery. 
God loves truth, therefore he hates lying speech. God loves marital intimacy, therefore he hates fornication and pornography. God loves personal liberty, therefore he hates coercion. God loves children, therefore he hates abortion. God loves ordered sexuality, therefore he hates gender confusion. God loves private property, therefore he hates theft and covetousness. God loves generosity, therefore he hates greed. God loves humility, therefore he hates pride. God loves justice, therefore he hates partiality. God loves unity in his church, therefore he hates gossip and slander. God loves the nations, every tribe, therefore he hates tribalism and the division of one people group and another by artificial and subjective categories. God loves his own glory, therefore he hates idolatry. By way of some examples. Our hatred of evil must be rooted in our reverential awe of God and his perfect hatred. We're human beings. We're fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We are redeemed by God and in the process of being sanctified and made to look more like Jesus. But only God possesses that perfect quality of hatred because there is the standard of perfect holiness in his very character and being. But we are called to hate what God hates, to bring ourselves into agreement with his judgments on everything that he has revealed in regards to his attitude about those things. And don't get me wrong here, okay? I want to D define this clearly. This hatred of evil that Christians, the people of God, covenant community are commanded to have is not merely, it's, it's not a hatred of, of personal vengeance. It's not a, a vengeful spite towards our neighbors. It's not merely the conjuring up of negative emotions against people. Biblical hatred of evil is settled opposition against what displeases God. Hatred of evil is settled opposition against what displeases God. And to do this, we must be able to recognize and identify evil for what it is. Which means our thinking must not be patterned according to a carnal, lawless world. This is what we are called to oppose, to stand in the way of, to count as our enemy. You see this in Psalm 139, right? The famous passage about being fearfully and wonderfully made, right? The, all of us are formed within the wombs of our mothers, and then the psalmist breaks out into this aside where he says, I hate those who hate you, God. I loathe them. And in the sense here, what we're referring to is, I count them as my enemy. I'm able to discern where I stand because I know your word, I know your revelation, therefore I know where they stand. If I see where they stand and that it is in opposition to you, then I oppose that. That is biblical hatred. Standing in the way. And this is what we need to do with the messages and the prescribed manner of life that we see and hear everywhere in our world today. I just saw something online 
uh, in the last couple days, Sierra, uh, R&B singer, if you were in high school at the time I was, you knew that she was very popular at the time, but she has a, a new song, and it's called For the Girls. And I just want you to listen to some of the lyrics. This is for the girls getting money. This is for the girls that don't need no man. This is for the girls who's in love with they self. This for all the girls who done did it by they self. That's evil. That's evil because of the destruction that it leaves in its wake. That's evil because it opposes the design of God. Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? No. In no sense of any category can we say that. It brings destruction on families. That kind of mentality produces a rebellious spirit. And forget the fact that Sierra is married to a multimillionaire quarterback with a handful of children. So forget the hypocrisy of not being able to live according to the type of instruction that she's putting out for life. But that is an example of the kind of spirit of the age that Christians must oppose. We must hate it. We must stand in the way of it. We are called to hate evil in any form that it takes. Now, wait a minute here. We're told in the scriptures that God hates the evildoers. And we're told that the community of believers, you and I, Christians, are supposed to bring ourselves into agreement with that. We are supposed to hate evil. But doesn't Jesus command us to love our enemies? He says that, right? He says, pray, pray for those who persecute you. He says, forgive them when they wrong you. He says to show them love. But harmonizing these together, the importance is understanding, once again, this is not about personal vendetta. This is not about vengeful spite. This is not about conjuring up negative emotions towards our neighbors merely, although emotions certainly play a role. God made us to be this way. He made us emotional creatures. And indeed, we are commanded to bless our enemies and not curse them. If you go with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. I'll give you a moment to get there. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God commands us to bless our enemies. Amen? Which is hard to do. He commands us to forgive our enemies, which is sometimes even harder. Amen? There is a command of God to oppose our enemies, and yet God gives us Jesus himself gives us the directive to pray for those who persecute us, to forgive them when they wrong us, and to love them, to love them with practical action. And that is because while God has commanded us to bless our enemies, he is the one that promises to curse them. If you're a child of Abraham today, who who in here is a child of Abraham by faith? Everybody should be raising their hands. What does God tell Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Because you may be tempted to ask yourself here, well now, this is the way that Jesus loves. This is the way that God loves. Doesn't God send rain on the just and the unjust and his common grace? And amen, he does. God is even long-suffering with his adversaries with his enemies. You and I are utter proof of that because he eventually drew us by his grace to repentance. And yet we are told to love our enemies, to pray for them, and to entrust them to the vengeance of God because we know that all things work together not for the good of the common good, but for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so even God's cursing of our enemies works together for our good. We're called to love them. We're called to bless them. God is the one who has promised to curse the unrepentant. Those who will not respond to wisdom's invitation. Those who hear it, those who even hear it day after day and reject it. Who will have none of it. Who grow hard of heart. God's judgments on the earth are for the good of his people. And so the best way to love our enemies is to oppose what they stand for. That's how we love them. And that informs how we pray for them as well. We pray for them that God would bring them to repentance, that he would be merciful and gracious towards them in the same way that he was merciful and gracious towards you and towards I when we did absolutely nothing to merit such a thing. We're called to pray that way. But we are also called to pray that God, if you do not do that, if it is not within your will, and this is very important, we don't pray according to the secret counsel of God. We pray according to the revealed will of God. We don't know. We can't look in people's hearts. We can't see what God is doing there at any given time. But we are to pray that if God does not convert our enemies, that he will remove them. That he will stand in their way. That they would make no further progress. That he would judge them. That God would arrest their progress and remove them. 
The best way to love them, the best way to love those standing in opposition to God is to oppose what they stand for. But we must be sure of something before we do. We must be sure of one thing. In your bulletins, the quote from Pastor James rings very, very true here, and that is, our commitment to opposing evil out there in the public square will only be as real as our commitment to personal holiness here amongst ourselves, in our lives, in our families, in our reach group, in our communities, in our, in our, in our church. We must make sure that we are committed to personal holiness. We can't oppose evil out there if we do not oppose it first in ourselves. I remember I was heading out the door yesterday uh, to take the kids somewhere, and I was saying out loud, I don't know why I was voicing this, I think it's because I had this message on the mind <laughs> right here, I was saying, hate evil, hate evil. And my wife looks over at me from the couch and she says, and that includes the evil in your heart. It starts here. We have to oppose the evil of indwelling sin. And we have to ask ourselves the question, we should feel the weight of this as the people of God. Are we holy? Are we holy? Are you holy? Am I holy? Not do we come to church regularly. Not do we take the Lord's Supper together. Not do we talk of holy things. Not do we call ourselves Christians. Are we holy right now? Are you holy right now? The Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need to feel the weight of that. I don't just want to rush to answer the question and fill in the, the, the void there. Are you holy? Are you committed to personal holiness in living the Christian life? How do we examine that without getting and veering towards depression? Because <laughs> that can become quite an endeavor. Am I? Do I have enough fervor? We, we, we've kind of grown up in, the, in a culture of Christianity that has taught us to measure our position with God by the amount of spiritual fervor that we have that day. And then when we don't have that day, we wonder whether or not we're one of God's children. Right? Do I, am I fervent today? Am I zealous for good works today? Do I have a heart that's on fire for God today? And we can look inward, which is what the world is telling us to do all the time. The answers are inside of you. What's inside of you just needs to be unlocked and let out, and then you'll reach your full potential. The answers are there in your heart. You need to uncover that. We can become morbidly introspective, right? Looking within so much that we forget the one thing that will actually do us good, and that's looking outward to the throne of grace. The hope is not in here. The hope is there where Christ is seated. It's not to look within and constantly question ourselves as we consider the answer to this question. Are we holy? Turn to Hebrews 4. 
please. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you doing that? If that's how you're living, if we're constantly drawing near to the throne of grace, seeking to find help for our every weakness, to take our sin to the throne and give it to the Lord Jesus, we are not falling short of the command pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So be encouraged. It's if you are covering sin. It's if you are hiding iniquity in your heart. That is when the danger comes. That is when we stand in a precarious position. If we sin in the dark, If we have that, we need to deal with it now. We need to come forward now and confess. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See the connection there? The fear of the Lord, fear of God, and holiness. If we're not holy, we have no business telling the world how to live. We have no business issuing calls to repentance. We will sound forth empty if we are not committed to being set apart. This is what holiness is, to be set apart, to be, of course, morally pure. And all of this, good news, isn't dependent upon you. That's not how we came to Christ. We didn't marvel at the kindness of God and His grace coming to us in the person of Christ and then on the side here have a homemade righteousness to present to Him and say, I'll add this to supplement. It was all of grace from beginning to end. It was Christ saving us. That's where holiness comes from, from our union with the Lord Jesus. Only then... Are we able to lift up our voice with Lady Wisdom and invite from the highways and hedges all who will come to the Master's banquet? The Master has thoroughly furnished and adorned a wonderful banquet with everything sufficient for the needs of mankind. Has He not? Everything that is needed, everything that you hunger for, He has supplied abundantly. And He calls His people to go out into the highways and into the hedges and invite whoever will come because that is the nature of our God. He's an inviting God when He has no obligation to invite. So what's the call 
today. The call is this. God is a God who gives invitation. Come. If you don't know Christ, come. Come all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Come and drink of the waters of eternal life. God is calling. How will you respond? Will you ignore? Will you put it off? Will you say, later, I'll get to that? Or do you see your need today? Do you see your need before a holy God? God is calling. How will you respond? Will you, project, will you reject the provision that he has made for you? Because there will come a day when he shuts the door. Will you take advantage of it now? And then for those of us, you know, if you look at this series and, and the Proverbs that we've been going through, there's been so much practical instruction on various areas of our life. How much of it have we actually put into practice? How much divine wisdom have we actually embodied in our lives? How much have we actually put effort and done our diligence to become practiced and polished in the various areas that we've been presented with? Are we putting it off? Are we saying, I'll get to that. I have things to do first. Right? This is for the covenant community. When God has put out his hands, when Lady Wisdom is raising her voice, longing to instruct, longing to teach us, will we heed that call and actually put these things into practice? And actually be obedient, actually grow, actually cultivate wisdom. That's the call that we're given by Lady Wisdom, who, by the way, prefigures the Lord Jesus himself in many ways. So, come and be cleansed. If you don't know Christ, come and be cleansed. Come and be washed. Come and be sanctified and made holy by his grace. Come and learn wisdom. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. And if you need wisdom... If you are the simple-minded, this is, I speak of myself, if you are the simple-minded, if you are not prudent, if you do not have discretion, if you are not learned in the ways of God's world and his ways, then come and learn wisdom. Come and learn. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that what went out today is for your glory. I pray that you would be pleased. It is about your spirit, God, doing a work in our hearts, and I pray that you would do that work today. Help us to heed wisdom's call, to heed your voice, Lord God, to respond to your gracious invitation, not to pass it up, not to put it off, but to actually step into it, Lord God. Allow us, God, to hate evil to oppose that which is opposed to you in a way that honors you, in a way that is not hypocritical, Lord, by working personal holiness into our lives. Help us to confess sin quickly, to keep short accounts with one another, to maintain fellowship in our families, in our homes, and amongst one another in the gathered congregation, and help us to commit ourselves to opposing evil in the fear of the Lord and bringing holiness to completion. 
And we do pray this and ask for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.